Let us pray. Our most gracious Father, we have heard both the words, all the words of your prophets. We have heard the word of your servant and our apostle Paul. We have heard the words of our Lord Jesus Christ today. And we pray, Father, that these words, along with the heartfelt praises from David in the Psalms toward your law, would be embedded in our hearts, that we would go out and show forth your loving grace, your loving kindness, your loving mercy and compassion toward all that we encounter. And we ask this all through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we go into my sermon, I do want to say I apologize to everyone who's hearing this mic scrape. I'm trying something different today instead of wearing it the whole time, um, kind of setting it where I hope that it can capture not only my voice, but better capture everyone who's here today. So usually the mic has been nice to just sit here without sliding on the lectern in previous times, I felt like, and today it won't do that. It just keeps sliding. So I keep, so when I picked up my Bible, I had to move it so it didn't go scraping down the entire lectern. So... That's why you see me moving it around so much, and I apologize for that distraction. Hopefully I'll, um, over this week, think of a better way to position this to better capture what's going on. Um, and so, we continue our time here in St. Paul. Here, looking at his letter to the people, to the Christians there in Rome, that he wrote so long ago. In the first few chapters, as I've said, he, he dealt with our condition. He dealt with the condition of the whole world being that lost in sin, being that separated from God, being, in fact, under his wrath because of our disobedience. And yet in the midst of that, God makes a way through Jesus Christ. And instead of having to fix our lives on our own strength, God changes us. He transforms us. He renews us that we might in faith turn to Jesus. And by that faith, through that faith, Jesus comes to dwell in us and bring himself to us, to bring his righteousness into us and to us that we would be clothed and be covered by Christ so that now our righteousness is based on what Christ does. Our standing before the Father is based on who Jesus is and what he has accomplished that through his death and resurrection, our sins are forgiven. And we have been renewed in everything. We have been made new Christians, new believers, new people. And so here in chapter 12, Paul begins taking all of that reality and thoroughgoingly applying it to the people of God. Paul likes to do that. He likes to talk a lot about what God has done mixing in there along the way, our little responses to God's great actions, and then turn and typically lay out lots and lots of what we do in light of what God has done, incorporating little bits of remember what God has done and now respond to what God has done on your behalf. Respond to who Jesus is. And that's where we find ourselves here in this last section of the book of Romans. So we're looking at Paul's exhortations based on the work of Christ. Here in chapter 12 especially, verses 9 through 21, St. Paul is laying down what the Christian life is to look like in view of the transformation of ourselves by the Holy Spirit. 
Now remember there in verse 1, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, that he has placed all of our lives as an act of general worship of God. And so we become living sacrifices. And through that, we are transformed in the renewing of our minds because our hearts and our wills have been transformed and now our minds are being transformed more and more to love, to respond, to understand what is going on in us. And here at verse 9, Paul says, Let your love be genuine. Love is the touchstone here. Love is the center, the foundation of what our lives are to look like. Every week at the beginning of our service, we always read the words of Jesus for our Eucharistic service when the lawyer came up and asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your soul. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Love is our response to God's grace. Love is not what earns us God's grace. I've heard too many preachers confuse what Jesus says with the gospel. As they say, there's the gospel in a nutshell. Love God with all of your being. And I just want to pull my hair out when I hear a preacher say that because it's something that Jesus says. That they mistake what Jesus says is the law, is the core central aspect of the law, with faith. That they confuse what it is that that's supposed to do to us. Hearing those words to love God with your whole being should cause us to step back and say, have I? To hear the phrase and to hear the law, love your neighbor as yourself, should stop us in our tracks. And we ask, have I done that? Have I done what the Lord has commanded me to do? And again, that's how all commandments are in Scripture. They should always make a step back for a moment and check and to recognize that we aren't doing everything God has called us to do. That even with the Spirit at work within us, even with the Spirit changing us more and more, little by little, day in and day out, moment by moment, we still are disobedient sinners, and yet we are perfectly beautiful saints, holy and righteous in God's sight because of what Jesus has done. But with the commandments of God and with us not doing them, we are still called to continually confess our sins, to confess what we have done wrong, in order that our faith would continue to grow, to be strengthened, to stay where it is, to begin avoiding what God has called us to do because we think, well, everything's been accomplished, I don't have to do anything. Is to refuse to live the life of the Spirit. Is to refuse to live according to the Spirit. It is to turn back to the flesh, as Paul says in chapter 8. And so Paul tells us to let our love be genuine because of what the Spirit has done. To let that love work in us that the God pours into us. And to purify our love for those around us. But it's not just so that we can be loving people and to pursue other people. But to not love genuinely those that God has placed in us is to inadvertently become overcome with evil. You see there at the end... Love becomes the touchstone once more, though hidden. 
There in verses 20 and 21, Paul says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul doesn't say the word love there, but what he is describing is love in action. That even if your enemy is hungry, you give him food. You don't leave him there to starve. So Paul's call to genuine love isn't just a call to do good. It's not just a call to look like good people, to try to look great before the world. But it's a call for us that we might not be conquered by evil. That as we pursue the doing of good, as we pursue living a life of godly love toward those around us, we keep evil from getting a foothold more deeply within us and conquering us once more and crushing our spirits and turning us away from the Lord. And so the first thing that Paul does here in these verses is 9 through 13 where he talks about our lives with other Christians. And then in 14 through 21, he begins talking about our life before the world, how Christians are to respond to the world that is separated from us on account of what he has done for us. And so in verses 9 through 13, he tells us first to let our love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. What does it mean for love to be genuine here? What does it mean to abhor what is evil, to hold fast to what is good? All of that clings together. First off, to let love be genuine is to not be a hypocrite. Is to actually love and act well toward people. To not just talk about how you do such great and wonderful things, but to actually go out and do those good and wonderful things. To have a consistency in your own life of everything that you're doing. To strive toward that consistency. And he connects it to abhor what is evil. So to have genuine love is to abhor what is evil. To pursue what is evil is to cast off genuine love. So Paul says, don't be a hypocrite in love by clinging to what is evil. Don't turn back to the evil path, to the fleshly path you were once on. Instead, let your love be genuine in your pursuit of Jesus. Hold fast to what is good. Look to what is good. And so there, let that love be genuine is a great expansive way of talking about our pose toward one another. That that word for love there is the word that we typically associate in Greek with charity. That we associate with just simple goodness toward another. A love that is beyond our feelings. A love that looks more at service than at how I feel, than at the warmth and affection within toward that person is a love that is based on action of kindness and mercy and compassion toward those who aren't us, who isn't me. It's an outward-focused kind of love. But then Paul follows it up in verse 10 with love one another with brotherly affection. When I looked at that phrase in Greek, I had to just laugh because it's such a great phrase. I didn't even I forgot to write it down, but I wrote down the two main Greek words that are at the front and back of that. First is the word Philadelphia, and it's followed up 
with philostorgos. They sound very similar. They both start with that word phila, which is a word for deep affection. And we tend to think of it as a brotherly kind of affection, a brotherly love. And of course, with Philadelphia, we know what that means, the city of brotherly love, right? It's explicitly focused on brotherly love, love between two equals who are related to one another. Oftentimes, it's viewed as also a deep friendship love, a deep love and commitment between two individuals as friends to have one another's backs, to take care of one another. And then the Philostorgos. Again, that same sense of brotherly affection, but connected with Storgos, even deeper affection, often used and thought of in relation to the love of children for parents and parents for children. And so Paul encapsulates our love for one another as Christians with two words that are deeply ingrained with this sense of familial love. That those other Christians that are around us are our closest brothers and sisters. That whatever love you might have for your closest friends and family, you're to have for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's not just outward action, but it is also a deep inward affection toward them. A deep affectionate care for those that God has placed around us to care for us and for us to care for them. You may be thinking, well, how can God command me how to feel? How can God tell me how I should feel about people? I can get him telling me to act toward people well. I can get that he can command me to do good works. But how can I get to that place of affection? That's not something I can conjure up, making myself like someone. That's the irony of how this kind of affection takes hold of us. Everything else Paul tells us to do are actions toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. Outdo one another in showing out and showing honor. Very similar to do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. A common theme I'm discovering more and more in Paul. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Outdo one another in showing honor, I think, is a great statement to get us to that place of understanding how brotherly affection can be commanded of us and can grow out of us. Because we become so outwardly focused that we quit worrying about the fact that you might not have the feelings inside toward another person. You might not have affection or kindness as feelings deep within. But when your focus becomes caring, for other Christians, caring for your brothers and sisters in Christ, being open to God working in you, leading and guiding you in that, and even sometimes admitting to God, Lord, I don't feel any affection toward this fellow believer. In fact, I feel pretty frustrated at this fellow believer. Change how I feel, Lord. We start looking to the Lord to change those affections deep within. And as we do those good deeds and those good acts, as we serve the Lord, as we try to outdo one another in showing honor toward each other, in showing respect, and not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, but seeing us all on the same place as people in need of God's grace continually, we begin to discover that affection and warmth 
begin developing. We begin discovering that those feelings of kindness spring up like long-awaited spring flowers as we walk this path open to the Spirit working in us, not gritting our teeth and bearing it. That's typically how we tend to view the Christian life, that we just got to try harder next time. No, it's being blatantly honest with your own personal condition in yourself and saying, Lord, I don't have the feelings. I don't have the affection that you've commanded me to have. Have mercy and forgive me and rework me. Let your spirit bring that affection out of the new life you have given to me. Bring that new life into me and bring those new affections into me. And I will continue going out and doing that which you have called and commanded me to do because you've told me to do that and that I can do. Let the affection come along with that in its time, O Lord. And that's what we start to see happen when we live a life of loving one another with brotherly affection even when we don't have that deep affection. We come to discover that we do care about these other people around us. We do care about our family in Christ. We care about the family that we go to church with that are closer than our flesh and blood, brothers and sisters and moms and dads and cousins and aunts and uncles. Closer than even our own children. Because Christ unites all of us together. Christ binds us together and works in us to make our love genuine. And as we love one another with genuine brotherly affection, evil will not conquer us. Evil will not overcome us, but we will overcome the evil around us and within us with the goodness and the mercy of God. But Paul doesn't stop there with how the Christians should treat each other. He tells us about contributing to the needs of the saints and seeking to show hospitality, but then he turns around immediately after such a heavy weight of saying, you need to be contributing, you need to be giving above and beyond to the saints and showing hospitality to them welcoming them into your home as best you can at all times. He then turns around and says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. One commandment after another as he shifts from talking about the church to suddenly talking about how do I respond to the world that hates me? How do I respond as a Christian? To a world that doesn't like me. And the first thing out of Paul's mouth is bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This passage is filled with all kinds of references toward antagonism from the world. He speaks of persecution. He speaks of not us not responding with curses toward people. He speaks of repaying no one evil for evil, assuming that evil has been done to you. He says, don't avenge yourselves. Don't go after someone who has wronged you and take vengeance against them. Antagonism is throughout this text right here. That we are against the world and the world is against us. But we as individual Christians aren't responding with hatred toward the world toward the people of the world around us. We respond with hatred toward our sin, but we don't respond with hatred toward those who do not know Christ. As individual Christians, we respond with blessing, 
We respond by going, coming alongside them and rejoicing. And when they have a joyful moment in their lives, we weep with them as they weep. We strive to live in harmony with one another, to have peace in our midst with each other, to live as peaceably as possible as it depends on us. Sometimes those we strive to live at peace with continue to attack and continue to cut down, continue to assault us in various ways. Instead of acting vengefully in return, instead of seeking retaliation, we strive to have peace. We strive to forgive. We strive toward reconciliation with them. As we hope and pray for them, that the Lord will act and will draw them to himself. That we are his ambassadors in front of a watching world. And so how do we respond to persecution? How do we respond to those who curse us? How do we respond to those who refuse to have peace toward us? We let our love be genuine. Because when we start going down that path of getting vengeance, of sliding everyone who slighted us, of holding on to bitterness and anger, toward those who did us wrong in the past. When we follow that path, our love quits being genuine toward others. We end up becoming overcome by the very evil that we are to overcome. The very evil that has been overcome on our behalf to begin with by Jesus. We become overcome by it when we pursue Bitterness and vengeance toward those who slight us and wrong us. But instead, our path is that toward love toward those people. Love toward the world. Kindness and mercy and compassion. Seeing them as God has once and always sees us. That we are fellow sinners in need of grace. That the world around us is full of fellow sinners in need of mercy, in need of forgiveness. In need of hearing that Jesus has died on their behalf in need of being shown kindness and mercy from people that they have always thought were hypocrites and were wicked and mean and terrible. Instead, we show them kindness and mercy. We bless them instead of cursing. And that basis for our response flows directly from how God has responded to us in our own evil. And God's response was revealed to us in chapter 5 bluntly that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And so we as individuals respond to the world around us with blessing. We respond with hope and faith in God to deal with the evil in the world. As Paul says, it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Through Christ, the sins of the world have been dealt with. And there's a time of calling toward repentance. There's a time of calling toward faith. But in the end, when Christ returns, he will bring judgment on those who have rejected Christ himself. He'll bring judgment on those who have chosen to love their sin more than the God who created them, who have refused to see their sin as sin. There will be judgment that will come. And we don't know when that is. But that's why God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. 
And so between now and then, we don't seek vengeance, knowing that God has promised that he will deal with the sin and the evil in the world that exists around us. And so in the meantime, Scripture says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. That sounds so violent, but it's not. Those burning coals are the pains of conscience striking them down. That as your enemy approaches you and tries to do you harm, instead you give him food to eat, you give him water to drink, you give him care and compassion. And for many, burning coals will be heaped upon their heads as the pangs of conscience begin striking them through your words and your actions toward them. And your doing good will overcome evil around you, little by little, in different ways. We may not always see it, but we strive to overcome evil always with good. We don't retaliate. We don't take vengeance. And this reminds me of the stories of the Chinese Christian watchman Ni, who was a very outspoken Christian in China. He was there when the communist revolution happened, and he continued pursuing Christ and refused to bow down to the ways of communism, to reject his faith in order to be committed to the state. And so he was in prison for years and years and years and years for that crime of staying faithful. Virtually beaten every day, left in solitary confinement for decades, all because he wanted to be a Christian and trusted in Jesus. One of the parts of this story that I love so much is the fact that they had to constantly give him new prison guards because the guards watching over him would convert to Christianity on account of how he would take the beatings they put on him. And one of the first things that he said was, I can't repay evil for evil. If they come to arrest me, I won't resist it. If they come to assault me, I won't resist it. I will let my enemy do to me as he pleases in order that I might have an opportunity to turn my enemy into my brother. And so day in and day out for years and years, he was beaten with no retaliations from himself. And his own guards began becoming Christians. All because he chose to overcome evil by being faithful to Jesus. And so his love was genuine in his actions. He wanted these people to discover Jesus. Because that's why his whole life was focused toward making Jesus known. And so his love was genuine and he was not conquered by evil, but instead conquered evil with good. And I know that leaves us asking questions of ourselves and it should. Well, am I really doing that? Have I done that? Regardless of whether or not your love has been genuine. You continue to pursue genuine love toward those around us, confessing your failures, confessing that I have not done what you've commanded, O Lord. Have mercy on me in Jesus. We always go back to confession because we always have to go back to Jesus. With every commandment, it gives us the path forward, but also reminds us of where we have been, that we haven't been obedient servants of Jesus But if we cover that up and pretend that those disobediences didn't happen, 
we harden our hearts. And so we're called to continual confession alongside continual faith, receiving God's goodness and mercy towards us. We always turn back and confess our sins and then receive God's grace and mercy upon us in order that we would continually be changed, in order that we would continue to live that transformed life, in order that we would begin striving little by little more and more toward that genuine love that Paul commands of us here. And as we pursue that genuine love by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit in us, we will not be conquered by evil. As we pursue that love toward God, our whole being focused on loving Him, focused on serving Him, that every one of our actions are tied to serving God always, we won't be overcome by evil. And we do that by the power of the Spirit in us, the one that God has given to be in us to transform, to renew our hearts and our minds. And so we can pursue after Jesus on account of what Jesus has done for us and the Spirit in us, striving to do these things that Paul calls us to do. And so may we continually pursue genuine love. May we pursue the overcoming of evil with good. And may we always turn back to Jesus when we discover that we haven't done all that God has called us to do and that we would confess those things and be restored by the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.